from PRX. Today on Studio 360's American Icons, 2001, A Space Odyssey. It's Hal's world now. We just live in it. Do you talk to Siri? Do you talk to Alexa? No! Because 2001, all I think about is Hal. I hope the two of you are not concerned about this. We meet a real-life AI robot on the International Space Station. My robot feelings are fine, I guess. And a NASA astronaut who used 2001 as a personal soundtrack. We filled the whole space shuttle up with that music. Christopher Nolan talks about the challenge of directing an ambitious space movie after 2001. I can't make Interstellar as if 2001 didn't exist. And poet Tracy K. Smith tries deciphering what happens at the end. That whole time, he doesn't blink. Who knows what blazes through his mind? The ultimate trip continues. It's part two of our look at 2001 A Space Odyssey. Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson, and I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken piece. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Da, da, da. I always open with a little something by a guy named Richard Strauss called 2001. A decade after it came out, 2001 was still in the zeitgeist, showing up in a Bill Murray sketch on Saturday Night Live. And so it has continued, from South Park to The Simpsons to countless commercials. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Hey, Google, open the pod bay doors. But the movie's most significant legacy remains its amazingly accurate depictions of 21st century technology. Welcome to voice print identification. Moon, American, Floyd, Haywood R. Thank you. You are cleared through voice print identification. I guess. If you listen to our first hour about 2001, which is in our podcast feed... You'll hear about how director Stanley Kubrick and writer Arthur C. Clarke first met back in 1964 in New York City over an eight-hour lunch at Trader Vic's restaurant just off Central Park. Today, more than a half century later, on that very spot now sits a huge, shiny, futuristic monolith with an Apple logo on it. Where we are now, where we've walked over, serendipity could not provide us a better version of what it's been replaced for, which is the giant Midtown Manhattan Apple store, right? I mean, uh, you can't make this up. Yeah, no, and it's beautiful sort of glass and all-white environment that's very Kubrickian. I mean, it's stunning. I was with Bruce Handy, a lifelong 2001 fan and a writer who'd recently spent a lot of hours in the Kubrick archives. 
Um, well, let's go inside. And uh, I, there, there's so much back and forth in terms of how 2001 influenced all kinds of things, including the design and aesthetic of Apple. Welcome to the Apple Store. You know, it's funny, I can, I can kind of imagine like the ghost of Kubrick coming in here. The first thing he'd be amazed by an iPhone, he'd be like, oh my God, this is incredible technology. And then the second thing he'd be like, oh my God, what if they watch my movies on this thing? You know, those, he, would have, he would have hated that. Kubrick left the planet shortly before iPhones existed. So he didn't get to see that 2001's monolith and the knowledge that it contained is now reflected in all these tiny black monoliths in our pockets. Just before he died, Kubrick gave Apple and Steve Jobs permission to use Hal in a promotional campaign. Hello, Steve. Uh, That's a very fast computer you have there. Uh, yes, it is, Hal. It's, it's actually very fast. Uh, one of the most amazing little glimpses of, of Kubrick's prescience in 2001 is the scene where the astronauts are using iPads, uh, you know, 40 years before there was an iPad. Here's one. This looks exactly... Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That actually came up in a lawsuit that, that Samsung brought against Apple when it brought out its first iPad, and they were saying they had the design of a, of a sort of a flat screen, you know, portable device was, was proprietary, just the, you know, the sort of very concept of it, and Apple successfully defended itself in part by pointing out that that thing exactly existed in 2001. You know, you see the astronauts playing chess on it and also, uh, you know, watching the BBC News and... Well, and what I recently discovered is that the iPod was named after the ePod, the extravehicular oh. pod from 2001. Oh, that's so funny, because I always thought, like, yeah, I mean, are we literally doing a podcast? And does this actually, so the, the word podcast obviously derives from iPod, and that derives from 2001, so we've come full circle. Let's stop now. The film also depicted our FaceTime Skype world in this scene aboard the space station when the mission boss, Dr. Floyd, calls his daughter from a picture phone. Dad. How are you, Squirt? Oh, are you coming to my party tomorrow? I'm sorry, sweetheart, but I can't. Why not? You know, Daddy's traveling. In 1964, age nine, I went to the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago where Bell had its its first you could actually talk on a TV phone to the people at the World's Fair in New York. And I did. I talked to some random kid, and it was the most awesome thing ever. And then it finally happened. You go, yeah, okay, fine. Well, actually, that and that is actually, in one way, that is something that Kubrick gets right about the future, is they're kind of bored by their own The banality of it. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're talking to a computer, and he's just like, oh, I know. Stanley seems to imply that the more technology we have that's bright and glittering around us and that enables human communication, the less we have to say. Piers Bazzoni is the author of The Making of Stanley Kubrick's 2001. You're coming to my birthday party tomorrow? Well, no, I can't. I'm sorry. Oh, why not? Well, you know, Daddy's traveling. You know, nobody's saying anything. And yet they're using this extraordinary device of instant communication from space to Earth. And look at the pilots. You get this wonderful space station looming in front of them. I think they press one or two buttons and sit back and watch the show because the computers are in charge of this incredible waltz, which, by the way, is absolutely correct. Not only are pilots really not very much in charge of, say, an Airbus or jumbo jet takeoffs and landings, uh, but they're actually discouraged from touching the controls uh, because the plane knows best. Until it doesn't like with cars that drive themselves and stock markets that are dominated by algorithms doing the trading. 
and all the other critical tasks we now delegate to smart machines. Alexa, what is artificial intelligence? The noun artificial intelligence is usually defined as the capacity of a computer to perform operations analogous to learning and decision-making in humans. Do you talk to Siri? Do you talk to Alexa? No! But Kurt, do you know why I don't? Because I, 2001! All I think about is how. Wesley Morris won the Pulitzer Prize for film criticism and writes for the New York Times. I mean, there are moments like just this morning, I swear to God, I was getting dressed and I wanted to know what the temperature was. And I was like, this is a moment for Siri. I think this every time I'm getting dressed, but I'm like, I'm not turning it on. I'm not turning it on. My distrust of technology comes entirely from that movie. Tom Hanks, the biggest 2001 superfan, also has mixed feelings about AI. I do not have an Alexa in the house. I know people that do. I was at somebody's house for a Hanukkah dinner, as a matter of fact, and Alexa was timing the, their latkes in the fried oil and turned on their automatic robot vacuum at the same time. Oh. And I thought that was, well, that's kind of like great. But then I don't know if that's information that you'd want Alexa to be able to put into the, uh, the big database uh, there. I, so I you're, 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 you're guarding yourself from Hal, basically. Well, I view them all as some version of Hal. Uh, and, uh, you know, what you don't want is Alexa to say to you at some point, just a moment, just a moment. <laughs> I've detected a fault in the deep fryer that is currently making your French fries for dinner. You don't want to have Alexa do yeah, that to you. I can't do that, Tom. <laughs> That's right. Open the garage door, please, Alexa. <laughs> Open the garage door, please, Alexa. I've got groceries and I want to get the ice cream into the freezer. I'm sorry, Elaine, I can't do that. That would, be, that would be bad news. Don't trust that. Alexa, should we be frightened of artificial intelligence? Hmm, I'm not sure. So how do we preserve our humanity amid all the machines? And where exactly are we headed in the century that 2001 envisioned? I decided to go straight to the source, the same computer lab that gave Kubrick and Clark a lot of their ideas for the movie back in the 1960s. IBM's research center north of New York City is a mid-century modern building designed by Eero Saarinen, who, by the way, designed some of the furniture on the space station in 2001. It's also where the Watson supercomputer beat the two Jeopardy! champions a few years back. A researcher showing us around opened a kind of secret door and unveiled a bit of IBM history. <laughs> Three, two, one, Watson. Whoa. Whoa. Okay, so that is the original machine. So it's like eight feet tall and 12 feet wide. And but it's actually still running. Do you ever have it sing Daisy, Daisy? No. Um, we haven't used it for that. Um, Dario Gill is the global director of IBM Research. AI has become so much more dominant in our lives. And the questions that we ask of AI, I see them reflected in 2001. And, and looking at the history, I mean, IBM was incredibly open to helping this wacky uh, director uh, make his science fiction movie. People really thought they were going to crack this problem of intelligence. They were seeing so much progress with what computing could do. They say, oh, you know, we're really on the cusp of changing the world fundamentally. 
Today at IBM, like at Google and Facebook and the others, lots of AI researchers think they're on the cusp of changing the world fundamentally as they try to make machines as intelligent as humans as soon as possible. I have heard you hold the world record in debate competition wins against humans, but I suspect you've never debated a machine. IBM's Project Debater AI, which has been in the works since Watson beat the best humans at Jeopardy, went up against a world champion human debater earlier this year and lost, although it was close. Reminding us what might happen when we get into life-or-death debates with supercomputers. Hal, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. In just the last very few years, advances in neural networks and deep machine learning have accelerated spectacularly. But Dario Gill thinks we're 30 years away or more from a powerful general AI like HAL. I think uh, movies have played a, a major, major role in even how we visualize what AI will do to us. And AI has been typically depicted as, in the end, some form of thing that ends up killing us. Well, in the, in the case of HAL, I mean, the interesting thing there is he does this from our human point of view, evil thing. But, like, maybe he was right to do what he did, right? I mean, it's a more complicated and nuanced and interesting version of AI gone wrong. Yeah, well, they also incorporate an element of deceit, like the system itself had to hold back information from the people traveling with it. And it turned out that that was the beginning of causing lots of problems. Speaking of the one, one, the key moment in 2001 where how does something, which is he reads the lips of the astronauts when they think uh, they're okay. Could AI do that right now? You could definitely do uh, lip reading. In fact, uh, there has been work around you know, augmentation of signals. What I think is really impressive in the film is that normally I'll be listening, but now I am adapting. I think that that is like a very sophisticated thing. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the part against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. So in that, in that example of like, what are more and more signals that I could tap in to have a better uh, situational awareness and understand. Let what me let really me look going. at his heart rate. Exactly, and I, and I think that that is that is beginning to happen. A, a lot more ambient sensing that the combination of many many things would allow me to get an accurate picture of who you are and what is your state and are you stressed. We have a laboratory here in this building monitoring the state of a person. That's pretty cool. And benign until it's connected to some algorithm that says, eh, this guy's not going to live much longer. Yeah, eh. that was not good. Yeah. <laughs> Believe it or not, IBM has already created its own little early alpha version of HAL with astronauts in space. My name is Matthias Biniok. I'm the project lead of the first autonomously free-flying robot equipped with artificial intelligence on the International Space Station. Biniak is an IBM researcher in Munich. The flying AI robot he worked on has a name, like Hal did. They call it Simon, spelled with a C. Simon is an acronym for Crew Interactive Mobile Companion. 
Simon is a white plastic globe with multiple sensors that scan its surroundings and tiny propulsion fans so it can fly around the space station in zero gravity. There's no glowing red eye like Hal, but a flat screen with a simple animated face that talks with the astronauts. He can really change his voice according to the appropriate emotion. So if you tell Simon, please open the port bay doors, he will answer, I'm afraid I cannot do that. Biniak hadn't seen 2001 before he started working on Simon. I think it was even in the first meeting it was mentioned that there is this movie about uh, an artificial intelligence going crazy and I was like, oh, well, this could be a problem. Um, I should definitely watch that movie. He realized Hal would cast a long shadow over any AI with astronauts in space for months. So one of the things we had in our mind was we don't want Simon to be creepy or strange. We want him to be maybe a little bit over-the-top happy and nice and friendly. Which sounds to me extra creepy. But for Biniak, dealing with fear of Hal also meant... We actually built an off button. So if you push that button on Simon, there won't be any internet connection, any power at all. He will be off. Simon is designed to help the astronauts with tedious, time-consuming tasks and also to be a companion. Simon, wake up. Because the astronauts on the International Space Station um, are in kind of an isolation. I'm waiting for your commands. But the astronauts insisted that Simon monitor them only when they ask him to. Simon, play my favorite song. During a test run on the space station, Simon did fine helping with an experiment and playing the music an astronaut like. He's playing the Man Machine by Kraftwerk. Very fitting. But then things got a little weird. He's accusing me of not being nice. Don't be so mean, please. I'm, I'm not mean. <laughs> He's telling me I'm mean. Oh dear, I feel you. Don't you like it here with me? He's a bit sensitive today. Take a look for when it is time for I mean, what could go wrong? Quite honestly, I wouldn't worry myself about that. Coming up, 2001 A Space Odyssey was a little off in its timing for a sentient supercomputer. What about its vision of space exploration? We talked to a former NASA astronaut to find out. For the record, I did not see any aliens in space or black monoliths. That's next on Studio 360's American Icons. Studio 360. T-minus 12, 11, 10, 9. We have ignition sequence start. The engines are armed. 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. We have commit. We have, we have liftoff. Looks good. We'll clear the tower. This building is shaking under us. Our camera platform is shaking. Man, perhaps on the way to the moon. On December the 21st, 1968, with 2001 still in theater showing routine flights to the moon, NASA was trying to do that for the first time in real life. 
Apollo 8 astronauts Bill Anders and Jim Lovell had both seen 2001 and joked about radioing back to mission control that they'd discovered a black monolith. As their capsule came around the far side of the moon, Bill Anders noticed the Earth rising above the lunar horizon. Oh my God, look at that picture over there. There's the Earth coming up. Wow, that pretty. The first human being ever to see that. Hand me a roll of color. Quick, oh man, that's great. Oh, I got a ray. Oh, that's a beautiful shot. The color photograph he took came to be known as Earthrise and could have been a still from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Then just six months later, when Apollo 11 landed on the moon, guess who Walter Cronkite had on CBS News coverage? A man who has dreamed of these things, who has written a movie, 2001, about this thing, sits with me here, Arthur Clark, one of my very favorite people. And Arthur, what was your feeling when we saw this thing happen today? Well, I don't think I did feel anything. I think we all sort of, the time just stopped to me, and I think it stopped for everybody. It was just a, a hole in history, you know, and every, the whole world's, everything, my heart stopped, breathing stopped. It really was flabbergasting. Clark, who'd written whole books imagining this moment, was at a loss for words. That Sunday night in July 1969, the whole world was watching. Yes, I was a counselor at a summer camp. Film critic Kerry Rickey was 16 at the time. And everyone was crammed in the, you know, 500 people crammed in a multi-purpose room watching it on a 16-inch TV. And I thought, I can't do that. And I don't know, I just took a hike by myself and looked at the sky and alone and just to kind of feel the magnitude of the moment. And I realized maybe I did that because of 2001. I needed to concentrate on it. I couldn't be with noise. I really wanted to be an astronaut in the 1960s, and then I found out that I had a heart murmur, and they wouldn't take me, and I was really despondent for weeks. I wanted to be the first woman astronaut. Tom Hanks wanted to be an astronaut, too. Houston, we have a problem. That's him playing astronaut Jim Lovell in the movie Apollo 13. As you're in the suit and doing all that and, mm-hmm. and, and putting it together and acting and all of it, is 2001 somewhere in your head? Oh, every, every, every step of the way, every moment. Um, the fact that Kubrick made his movie with none of the bells and whistles or computer ease that Apollo 13 did, uh, I felt like we were almost lazy. We didn't get to do as, as cool a stuff as Kubert got to do. I mean, the, the art imitating life, imitating art aspects are, are pretty cool, like, like the Apollo 13 command module called Odyssey. Jim told me that they named it Odyssey because of the movie, but then if you look at what the, the definition of Odyssey is, it's a voyage with many twists and turns of fate, in the, right. <laughs> and, right. which, is, which is exactly what happened to him. Apollo 13, Houston. Um, I want to I want to play some audio before things went haywire. This is the actual radio transmission okay, from 1970 uh, with Mission Control. Computations back here. We show you about uh, 55, 450, and uh, going out rapidly now. Well, Hal might be a little bit off. We okay. have a sign underneath our uh, LEB disky that my name is Hal. I can't imagine how that got there. Just remember, you have to be nice to hell. We will. 
Well, there you go. How it entered into the lexicon, even at Nashville. Yeah. Yeah, they took to it because it's exactly what they were doing. It was the future that they were uh, hoping for. Over the next couple of decades, NASA built space shuttles and an international space station. But 2001's ambitious vision of space travel hasn't come true. I mean, there's there's a lot of things, I, I would say, where real life didn't quite measure up. I mean, boy, it's already 2019, uh, so we're 18 years past where we were supposed to be in 2001. We don't have human missions to Jupiter. Garrett Reisman is a professor of astronautical engineering at USC and a NASA astronaut who spent 107 days in space in 2008. So as we came up to the space station, uh, it wasn't this giant wheel spinning with a, with a fancy, um, you know, modernist uh, lobby <laughs> to check in or anything. Did you have a pleasant flight, sir? That's very nice, thanks. But Reisman says 2001 was spot on about a lot of other things such as the video communication with family, the ridiculously complicated toilet, and what it feels like when something goes wrong in space. On the first spacewalk I did on my second mission, uh, we installed a new antenna on top of the space station. And, and I did recall when I watched the movie again recently, the similarity was striking, you know, how he goes out there to fix that big dish, and, and uh, that's essentially what I was doing uh, Roger, your plan to go EVA and replace Alpha Echo, a 3-5 unit, prior to failure. I had to physically carry it from the space shuttle payload bay all the way up to the top of the space station while standing on the end of the space station robot arm. Prepare B-Pod for EVA help. And at one point, the arm actually uh, broke down, and I was stuck, stranded out there. Reisman had trained how to spacewalk down the robot arm if something like this ever happened. But I looked down and I saw immediately that the protuberances and all the electronics boxes that I was not going to be able to get my, my tether all the way around that to get me safely all the way down. I was going to have to break the tether at some point. And that, that's a bad feeling. And, and if you saw 2001, you know why that's not good. So, <laughs> so uh, relatively recently, I actually showed the movie to my seven-year-old son and... Um, he didn't react to that very well at all. In fact, he had nightmares for a while. So that, that, that thought went through my mind. But fortunately, before I had to actually implement that plan, they rebooted and got the computers up and running, and we were back in business. He says that 2001 perfectly imagined the feeling of floating in the abyss, the terror, the awe, the sublime. It was as we were approaching the space station in the space shuttle Endeavor. And the space station starts out as just this bright dot on the horizon. And as you get closer and closer, it starts becoming gigantic. It, it began to occupy and fill up all the windows. And, and as that was happening, I was immediately reminded of 2001, where the Pan Am space plane is taking Floyd up to the space station. And there's this delicate dance that it does. It's like, wow, the only thing we're missing is the music. And so about three months later, I was getting ready to go home, and I was in the uh, spatial discovery now with Mark Kelly, and we had that same view out the window. You stand in station from discovery, physical separation. And uh, I said, hey, Mark, how about some theme music? You guys ready for a little theme music? Yes. Yeah. 
and I started playing the Blue Danube. I had these portable speakers that I plugged into the laptop, and we filled the whole cabin of the space shuttle up with that music. And all of us immediately were transported to the movie. It was really a magical moment. Reisman eventually left NASA to work for SpaceX, Elon Musk's company, which is another thing about space travel that 2001 predicted decades before it happened. Private companies like SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, and Blue Origin are leading our expeditions into space. Billionaire Jeff Bezos' next venture is literally out of this world. It's time to go back to the moon, this time to stay. The cautionary tale of 2001 is technology as a double-edged sword. It starts early on with the famous dawn of man shot of the bones spinning up in the air and then that miraculous match cut when you're suddenly there in the calm of space transfixed by this glorious spacecraft. And you just laugh at that. You just laugh at that sequence, not because it's ridiculous, but because it's amazing. And it never ceases to be amazing. New York Times critic Wesley Morris. That bone going up is going up in triumph. And it really is about man's ingenuity until it's about man's obsolescence as well. The movie didn't say so, but that first spacecraft you see is a vessel full of nuclear missiles pointed at Earth. It's important to realize that Planet of the Apes was released almost the exact same time as 2001. One week earlier. Temple University professor Barry Vacker is the author of Spectre of the Monolith. In 2001, we began with apes and the monolith, and we evolved to a spacefaring species. In Planet of the Apes, we began as the spacefaring species, and we find out that human society has devolved. We realize that the humans had destroyed the world with a nuclear apocalypse. You maniac! You blow it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! 2001 is the optimistic spin off space exploration, but it poses this great philosophical challenge where Planet of the Apes says, we're doomed, we're going to mess it up. And, and both are possibilities. You know, and, I, and it is extraordinary that they came out within days of each other in 1968. Exactly. Like, here's the, here, here are the choices, folks. Yeah, I think so. I think that, that in our post-Apollo culture, we're still in the midst of trying to get out of some kind of primal tribalism. Just so. A half century later, President Trump has proposed to build a new military space force. It is not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We must have American dominance in space. So important. How did it, 2001, influence science fiction and space movies that came afterwards? I would say in a very bad way. Because I think a lot of people learned the wrong lesson that space is scary and things will kill you. It turned it into a Western. Right. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. 
I suggest we use it. Don't be too proud of this technological terror you've constructed. We, we unfortunately call Star Wars a space opera because, you know, it's a clever neologism that basically turns soap opera into space opera. But 2001 is, is Wagner, Puccini, Bizet. I mean, nobody was using the cinematic art form to suck in these other art forms to create something that no one had ever seen before. And he was going for something that would be infinitely rewatchable, but it has progeny that are not biologically created, but created in a, in a lab. Operettas. Right, right. Oh. <laughs> I mean, yes, exactly. But, you know, occasionally you will get like a Gilbert and Sullivan um, to Stanley Kubrick. And it's not that there have been no great space movies. There just have been none as great as that one. One of the most direct cinematic descendants of 2001 was Interstellar, which came out in 2014. We're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. The film was written and directed by Christopher Nolan. Well, somebody I was talking to about the film put it very politely in that they said the film is in conversation with 2001 which I took to be a polite version of ripping it off. <laughs> but I think what they were saying actually was, was I can't make Interstellar as if 2001 didn't exist. I live in a world where it exists, and yes. that's my chief inspiration for yeah. making the film. So I really tried to simply be inspired by it and not not do things and right. not do things because it, because it did it and, and try, hopefully, and add something. But uh, no apes or Johann Strauss. (laughs) No Strauss, no apes, exactly. Not in front of the camera, anyway. But just like Kubrick and Clark, Nolan consulted with scientists to make sure Interstellar was as realistic as he could make it. His visual effects team also used a lot of analog filmmaking techniques, as if in homage to 2001. Yeah, I mean, I think what, what Kubrick did was way ahead of its time. For me, there's a theme in the film that, that really is saying, look, we've had all kinds of technological advancements over the last couple of decades that have been very much to do with what's in our pockets, what's in the corner of our living rooms, how we communicate. And, you know, when I was a kid, people were looking, okay, how can we use technology to explore our place in the universe? I think one of the themes of Interstellar is maybe we should get back to that. Wouldn't that be exciting? Well, we used to look up in the sky and wonder at our place in the stars. Now we just look down worry about our place in the dirt. As soon as 2001 A Space Odyssey came out and started burrowing its way into public consciousness, it not only shaped our views of space, but of Earth, and helped inspire a whole new art movement called land art. Think Spiral Jetty on the Great Salt Lake. They're giving us an experience that connects us to the stars above and to the natural world surrounding us on our planet. Professor Vacker has visited lots of these works in the empty spaces of the American West. The idea of taking art out of the gallery and putting it into nature and pointing it into the stars, I think, is the natural successor to 2001 because we see the monolith stuck into the desert. It's almost like a beautiful work of art right there. It turns out there's an even more direct connection. One of the great American artists working in that tradition is James Terrell. Hello. Terrell became famous for his light sculptures and especially his awe-inspiring sky spaces. 
But back in the 1960s, he was a young pilot who often hung out at the Santa Monica airport. Kubrick had rented a hangar there to do some of the visual effects for 2001, and Terrell was hired on to help. I was pretty much starstruck, I'd have to tell you. <laughs> so tell me exactly what, what was the work you did on, on the film? Oh, I was pretty much just a grunt. Uh-huh. I mean, going to get stuff, doing, you know, doing whatever the odd thing I could do. So I couldn't believe he actually remembered my name when I was such a small part of what he was doing. That was the thing that impressed me the most. Until we tracked him down at his studio in Arizona, Terrell had never spoken publicly about his involvement with 2001. I'm I'm surprised that so few people are aware of it. Well, yeah, that's because I didn't do much on it. I understand. I understand. But you're James Terrell. (laughs) I am, and he's Stanley Kubrick. James Terrell has focused the last 35 years to creating a work of mind-boggling ambition. Roden Crater is a two-mile-wide naked-eye observatory and cosmological cathedral inside an old volcano in the Arizona high desert. He plans to open it to the public in 2025. My interest in what the kind of work I do is trying to have people feel that we're on a planet now so that we're already in space. Mm-hmm. That's a connection between me and Kubrick that to think that we're alone in, in this universe is the height of arrogance. Mm. I mean, I get wall-to-wall stars out here, so it is something where you do have access to the universe at night. Well, you must feel like you're working with it. I mean, Roden Crater is in the Earth, but it's kind of all about <laughs> out there, is it not? Well, I'm, I'm using the light from all these different bodies. I mean, our sun reflected off the planets and moon, and then also uh, starlight. I think that we weren't made for daylight. We're made either for the light of the cave or we're made for twilight. That's when we see. And it's not until light gets reduced that the pupil opens. And that you, you do feel when you have a moonless starry night. Coming up, we try to make sense of the ending of 2001 with the help of America's Poet Laureate. That's the first leap of faith that you have to take in watching this movie is to say, no one's going to explain this thing to me. That's next on Studio 360's American Icons. Studio 360. Alexa, what happens at the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey? Sorry, I'm not sure. Eighteen months ago, the first evidence of intelligent life off the Earth was discovered. Last year, for the 50th anniversary of 2001 A Space Odyssey, Christopher Nolan oversaw the release of a new 70mm print in theaters. Seeing it on a big screen all these years later, I was amazed all over again. The four-million-year-old black monolith has remained completely inert. Its origin and purpose, still a total mystery. In a lot of ways, the movie itself remains mysterious. People still argue over what it's about, what it means. Uh, You know, an extraterrestrial intelligence seeding life on Earth. I mean, that and then whatever came after that. (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't know. I think it's just about like cyclical life. Uh, what? It's a two and a half hour movie, and there's 40 minutes of dialogue. I'm not gonna say anything. <laughs> Space. I think it's like the universe is somehow like capturing. Um, <laughs> Stop laughing at me. Um, no, it's like the, it's like the baby at the end. It's like the artificial intelligence, and then combined with the human, birth this new reality. I have no idea. I have no fucking idea. In the final scenes, we watch astronaut Dave Bowman in his space pod hurtling alone through the psychedelic Stargate. He somehow ends up inhabiting a simultaneously old-fashioned and futuristic suite of rooms. We see him rapidly age until suddenly there's a black monolith at the foot of his bed, cut to outer space where a stupendous embryonic star child gazes down on Earth. Cue, thus spoke Zarathustra, roll credits. Did Stanley Kubrick explain what that was supposed to have meant? No, I think that's all in the eye of the beholder. But actor Keir Delay has a theory. By this time, my character was in the hands of the aliens, although we never seen, which was very wise on Stanley's part, never to show an alien. Um, but the way we, we take a polar bear that we capture and we put it in a zoo, we build an artificial pond and a cave to make the polar bear think it's at home. That was habitat. I get it. That was habitat. That's just my own interpretation. Let me pose you a question. 2001 chronicler Piers Bazzoni. If Hal had managed to kill off all of the crew and had turned up to the monolith at the end of the movie on his own, do you think the monolith would have been disappointed? Or do you think the monolith would have said, two million years ago I gave an ape a bone the bonus turned up to say hello. I'm happy with that. Technology is not going away, and it will be part of our evolutionary progress. We are probably going to be part human, part machine. The, the final scenes of, of the film are so... I don't even know what adjective <laughs> to use. Um, they're mystifying. They're, they feel like a little bit holy to me. Tracy K. Smith, the U.S. Poet Laureate, first saw the film around 2001 and was so inspired, she wrote a collection of poems called Life on Mars that won a Pulitzer Prize. It's really satisfying if a poem can find a way of effectively dwelling in some of its uncertainties. You know, resolution feels good sometimes. Other times it feels like an erasure or discounting of the largeness that is much more meaningful and intriguing to us, but also maybe a little bit scary. And I like how the film uh, kind of goes into that space and it doesn't shut the door behind it exactly. Tracy grew up in a religious household that was full of books. Her father worked as an engineer on the Hubble telescope. And her poem, My God, It's Full of Stars, is a meditation on his death informed by watching 2001. Perhaps the great error is believing we're alone, that the others have come and gone, a momentary blip, when all along space might be chock full of traffic bursting at the seams with energy we neither feel nor see. 
Maybe the dead know. Their eyes widening at last, seeing the high beams of a million galaxies flick on at twilight. I want it to be one notch below bedlam, like a radio without a dial, wide open, so everything floods in at once. When my father worked on the Hubble telescope, he spent whole seasons bowing before the oracle eye, hungry for what it would find. His face lit up whenever anyone asked, and his arms would rise, as if he were weightless, perfectly at ease in the never-ending night of space. Um, when, Tracy, did your father die? In 2008. Uh, not so many years after you first saw 2001, I guess. Well, I had been writing what I was describing to myself as like science fiction poems. But then my dad got really sick very suddenly and unexpectedly. And then he ended up passing away. And um, my perspective was overcome with grief. But my imagination was still kind of out there in space. And it actually felt like a useful backdrop for exploring loss. You know, it seems lonely. It seems cold. It's full of mystery. There's so much there that we somehow can't make contact with. And I wasn't expecting the film to come in, but then it did. And it helped anchor those sort of nebulous feelings to something that was visual. Visuals created by Doug Trumbull. He's the kid from California who cold-called Stanley Kubrick in 1965 and went on to invent a lot of the film's special effects. He and Kubrick had a falling out over who deserved 2001's only Oscar for Best Visual Effects. But one day I just decided that it was time to bury the hatchet, and I cold-called Stanley again many, many years later. And I said, Stanley, I just want to talk to you, and I want to thank you for changing my life. That's why I'm calling. Not long after that, in 1999, Kubrick delivered a print of his film, Eyes Wide Shut, headed home to his English country house, went to bed, and never woke up. Gone at age 70, he just missed getting to see the year 2001. When I found out that he had died, I said, well, I've just got to be there. I went to his memorial at his home. At the end of the memorial service, his casket was lowered into this grave, and everyone had left. They all went into the house to drink and carouse. And I'm saying to myself, you know, Stanley's out there all alone. Just broke my heart. So I went back out there. I pulled up a chair over his grave, and I looked down there. And I said, Stanley, I got a few more things to say. <laughs> and I had, I had my final conversation with Stanley. <laughs> Just before Stanley Kubrick had died, he addressed an audience of filmmakers, still cracking wise, still aiming high. I've never been certain whether the moral of the Icarus story should only be, don't try to fly too high, or whether it might also be thought of as Forget the wax and feathers and do a better job on the wings. In those last scenes, when Dave is whisked into the center of space, in his little ship, 
blind to what he rides, whisked across the wide screen of unparceled time, who knows what blazes through his mind. On set, it's shot after shot till Kubrick is happy. Then the costumes go back on their racks, and the great gleaming set goes black. Studio 360's American Icon series is supported by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. This episode was produced by Derek John. We had production assistance from Tony Bazarian, Eliza Lambert, Lane Gerbig, and Sam Kim. Our sound engineer is Sandra Lopez Monsalvet. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. And our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. You can find all of our American Icons programs, including our first hour about 2001, in our podcast feed. I'm Kurt Anderson. Alexa, who is the astronaut Dave Bowman? David Walter Dave Bowman was an American jazz pianist. Did that answer your question? PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360. Okay, now let's have a roll of the drums, please, for the biggest bomb of 1987 or of almost any recent year. A notorious cinematic turkey. You didn't think, did you, that we had forgotten Ishtar? (laughs) The movie was hexed, and I don't think anyone could watch it with an open mind. Taking a second look at Elaine May's Ishtar. That's next time on Studio 360.